So, our Father, we come to you. We honestly have nowhere else to go. We thank you that um, your throne is in the heavens and your sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 103 says. We thank you that you spoke the world into existence. We thank you that uh, you created all things. We thank you that all things are your servant. We thank you that you own history. You own the future. You have a plan. You are working your plan. You're working your plan in our individual lives. You are working your plan in this nation. You are working your plan in the whole world. Yet so often we look around and it seems like there is no plan. It looks like there's utter chaos. And there is utter chaos when men turn from you. There is utter chaos when nations turn from you. There is utter chaos when leaders turn from you. We are living in times of rebellion to you and to your name. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That used to be us. It's not anymore. But you still have your people. You always have a remnant of those that you have called by name to know you. And out of your goodness and mercy and out of your grace, you have uh, opened our eyes so that we might see. You've opened our ears so that we might hear and comprehend the gospel. That in itself is amazing because we were spiritually dead with no interest in you. We weren't seeking you. You came and sought us. We love you because you first loved us. And because you have pulled us to yourself and given us eternal life through Christ our Lord and his sacrifice of his life on the cross for our sins through his death, burial, resurrection, we have eternal life. And now we're walking through this life and honestly, Lord, we are living in troubling times, and at times we wonder what you are up to. But we know you're up to something. We often do not understand your ways, and you told us we would not understand your ways. You said in Isaiah 55, 8, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. This is why we, we, we can't get our arms around. We, what is going on? We can't figure it out. You know exactly what you're doing. You've got a plan for the ages. You've got a plan for history. Christ is coming back. There'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth. There'll be a new Jerusalem. That's been the plan from day one. And you're working your plan. 
and your plan is on schedule, and your plan is more exact than an atomic clock, and no man, no demon can thwart it. No government can thwart it. No politician. No liar can thwart it. You're God. We're not. So we look to you this evening for wisdom as we're walking the path of life that's right, set before us, right where we are this month, this week, we're asking for wisdom to walk carefully. Help us, Lord, <clears throat> to keep our Bibles open so that we might have a greater understanding of the times in which we live. We can't live off the news. We can't live off talk radio. We can't live off the opinions of men. We live off your word. Jesus, Jesus said it directly in Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So as we study your word tonight, give us hope. A lot of folks are without hope. Give us peace because a lot of folks are troubled. Um, give us confidence in you because a lot of people are scared to death right now. We join with the psalmist in Psalm 31 who said, As for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say that you are my God. My times are in your hand. Encourage us tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, we are in the next chunk of Ecclesiastes. We are uh, going to be handling Ecclesiastes chapter 6 all the way into 7, down to verse 14. I have uh, been reading a biography of Malcolm Muggeridge, an autobiography, and uh, the, the title is uh, Chronicles of Wasted Time. He was a brilliant uh, British commentator and journalist. He knew everyone in England, the leaders. He was on the world stage. He was a correspondent. He was a commentator for the BBC. Later in his life, he turned to Christ. But... Uh, as a young man, he was a socialist, and he went to uh, Moscow and was sort of taken with the whole uh, Marxist socialist system. His father was taken with it. He was raised with it, thought that was a superior system. And, uh, <coughs> but as he was uh, in, in Moscow, he would hear rumors of what was happening away from Moscow. The uh, devastation, the famines, uh, uh, the fact that people would just disappear under this regime. 
back in England, people were praising it, saying it's what we need in this country. Uh, but uh, he, he had his translator buy uh, train tickets, and they went out hundreds of miles from Moscow to the uh, east and, and saw the, uh, the famines, people starving. And it was a bureaucratic planned famine to get the people in complete dependence upon the state. Uh, eventually, that, that was what started to turn him to Christianity. Um, there, there was quite a line in here. Someone asked another journalist that was a contemporary of Muggeridge, and this journalist was also in Russia, they, they asked that journalist about the rumors that they were hearing and about the integrity of the reports that were being published in the newspaper from the correspondence in Russia, going back to England. Uh, <clears throat> in other words, the, the, this, this utopia we're hearing about in Russia under Stalin, is this accurate? Is this really true? And the man replied, this wasn't Muggeridge, but it was another journalist who replied, everything was true except the facts. <laughs> no, it wasn't a utopia. People were being slaughtered. Slaughtered. Millions were being slaughtered. I love that phrase. Everything was true except the facts. That's what we're getting in our culture today. In our culture, we take what's good. <clears throat> what's good, our culture calls bad. What's bad, our culture calls good. And you better get in line. And you better march in step with the party line. Well, if you follow Christ, you're not doing that. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. The Lord is my shepherd. When you follow Christ, you're always, uh, let's put it this way, when you follow Christ, you're not swimming downstream, you're swimming upstream, especially in the days in which we live. Um, in Ecclesiastes <clears throat> 6, and Ecclesiastes 7, the section we're going to deal with, there are two, what I would call, true facts. Now, there are going to be more facts that we're going to look at tonight. But in the big picture, to kind of give you an outline, and to use that phrase, everything was true except the facts, there are two true facts. Francis Schaeffer would make up terms. In his writings, he used he made up the, the, the he made up the term. It was a great term. True truth. A lot of people have truth. He says the Bible is true truth. It's not the opinion of men. It's not the opinion of philosophers. It's it's God's word. It's true truth. It's real truth. It's authentic truth, not counterfeit. Uh, so let me give you two overreaching true facts that we find in Ecclesiastes 6. The first, 6 and 7. Fact number one, and this would be in Ecclesiastes 6. So fact one would be this. Prosperity is not always good. Now, 
We think it is. I mean, my gosh. Don't you want prosperity? Sure. Okay. Well, according to Ecclesiastes 6, as we're going to see in a minute, prosperity is not always good. The second fact, and this is in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 14, is this. Adversity is not always bad. Now, see, this is counterintuitive. Because the way we're wired, we think prosperity is always good. We think adversity is always bad. Let's, uh, let's jump to the... Let's jump to Ecclesiastes 7.14. Let's, let's, let's start with the end. Uh, usually you start at the beginning. Let's start at the end. Because this verse will... Uh, show you the summary, and, and it'll show you where 6 and 7 is going, we would actually begin in 7.13, where it says, and, and you see, this sums up those two facts that we just looked at. 7.13, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? The the things that are bent would be the adversity, the hardships, the difficulties, the disappointments, the setbacks. Consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. What's after you tonight? Tomorrow is after you. We have no idea what's coming tomorrow. We have no idea what's coming next week or in six months or in 10 years. Do we? No. But God knows. All right. But do, you, but do you see this? Prosperity belongs to God. Adversity belongs to God. This ties in with the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3. God has appointed a time for every event under the heavens. A time to be born, a time to die. Uh, a time for war, a time for peace. There are 14 pairs of opposite. It, it covers, um, as Weibold of Sports used to say, the drama of athletic competition, the, uh, the thrill of victory. Boom, 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 boom. And the agony of defeat. If you remember that opening in Weibold of Sports. It... it it encompasses all of life, God's over all of life. He's over your life, he's over my life, he's over not just the good, he's over the bad. Um, here's the thing about Solomon. And we've talked about this before. Solomon knew the Lord, he had a godly father, David. He, uh, when his father died, he took the throne of the nation. Uh, he was assigned to build the temple for the living God in Jerusalem. Uh, his father prepared the way for him to do that. In his early years, the Lord appeared to him twice. Uh, in his middle years, you started to see cracks in his life. The cracks were there earlier because he'd been told in Deuteronomy 17, 17, not to marry more than one wife. He did. Uh, 
why not marry more than one wife? Because those wives, those foreign wives, will turn your heart from the living God. That's precisely what happened. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Um, so after building that uh, great temple to the Lord, he, uh, in his later years, was building temples to foreign gods around the mountains of Jerusalem. Uh, apparently, later in his life, he came to his senses and returned to the Lord. But what he did was, he examined life under the sun. Life under the sun is uh, what we call today secularism. It's alive and well. Secularism is the viewpoint of life that says, this world is the only world that it is, that there is. There's no other world. There's no afterlife. He pursued that and went after it, and uh, he had all the money in the world. He had all the power, and he just pursued it to see what was there. And this is why Ecclesiastes is so full of despair, because he would try these different things and run down this trail and run down this trail looking for, for fulfillment and happiness, and uh, he got there, and it was empty. Uh, that is what we find all the way through Ecclesiastes. But also because he wrote this at the end of his life, after he had had all these experiences, you find these rest, drop, rest stops, if you will, that he inserts uh, on these uh, winding roads, these winding switchbacks, and he keeps coming back to fear God. Live life with the woman you love. Uh, work hard. Uh, in, in, enjoy what God has given you. This is your lot in life. He keeps coming back that there is a God who is good and has overseen our lives and our journey and who has redeemed us. And the best way to live is to live in relationship with the living God. But he just keeps doing the switchbacks. We talked about this last week. Uh, now in Ecclesiastes 6, he, he is going to give us some wisdom. This is part of the wisdom literature. And this wisdom simply says, beginning with Ecclesiastes 6, here, here is the true fact. Here is the, uh, here is the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is that we all want prosperity, but prosperity is not always good. Now, if anybody knew about prosperity, it was Solomon. All of his drinking glasses, not just at the banquets, but his drinking cup in his bathroom with the toothbrush stuck in it was gold. All of his cups were gold. Silver was not considered valuable in his day because there was so much of it. There was so much gold. This guy was unbelievably wealthy. Queen of Sheba came to visit him. Heard about his wealth, his wisdom. She looked around at what this guy had. She said, the half wasn't even told to me. I can't even comprehend this. Uh, so you see, when Solomon says that prosperity is not always good, he knew exactly what he was talking about. Now, beginning with chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, he's going to give us another fact. Let's read the passage. He says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. It's not the exception, it's the norm. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, 
Yet God has not empowered him to enjoy them, for a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, this is emptiness, uh, and a severe affliction. There is a principle here, and it's very important that we get this. He's making a very clear distinction. And what he is saying is this, the gift of possessions and wealth. And by the way, believers, when we are given positions and wealth and affluence, we know that comes from the hand of God. But even unbelievers who have possessions and wealth, that comes from the hand of God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, and what do you have that you have not received? Deuteronomy 8, 18, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. So if someone uh, is an astute businessman and uh, just kind of has a, an ability to make money, just has a business sense. Where do they get the business sense? Where do they get that ability to do those numbers in their head so fast and so quickly without a calculator? Where do they get those people skills? Where do they get the ability to read other individuals? Where did they, where did they get all of that? They got it from God when he formed and fashioned them in the womb, even though they don't know it. Okay. So back to the principle. The gift of possessions and wealth does not automatically come with the gift of enjoyment. The gift and the ability to enjoy your wealth and your possessions is separate from the gift of possessions and wealth. Is that not what he says? Two, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing at all of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to enjoy them. Now, he's already told us this in the book. If you look at uh, Ecclesiastes 2.24, he says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This is any kind, I was reading Martin Luther this week, and Luther talked about, uh, Martin Luther, God used Martin Luther to understand that we are saved by grace and not by works. Uh, and, and an earthquake shook the world called the Reformation. And uh, Luther found peace with God. He couldn't have peace with God. He was trying to earn forgiveness with God, and, and when the Lord opened his eyes and he was born again and he was regenerated and understood that uh, salvation and forgiveness of sins is a free gift of God, it also opened up his eyes to see other things. And he began to search the scriptures. You see, the natural man cannot understand the things of God. They are spiritually understood. That's 1 Corinthians 2. A guy without Christ reads the Bible and he can't see it. He's blind. Martin Luther was blind. And when Christ came into his life, his eyes were open. Satan is blinded to the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. But when Christ comes into your life, you were dead, now you're alive. You were blind, now you can see. 
And he started just, the word of God just started popping off the page. And this guy was a scholar. And he began to realize that uh, there's a whole bunch in this book that he had not seen before. Um, uh, even on the idea of work. That uh, all men have been assigned to post. Uh, those, uh, those, in, uh, those in the church have been assigned to post. But that doesn't make them any better than the man who cleans out the stable uh, and takes care of the horses that uh, pull their wagons. You see, he understood that. And uh, each man has a calling, and each man has a post, and that no man is better than any other man. Um, he began to understand that uh, it was all right for him. You see, he'd been taught that priests should be celibate and priests should not marry. And then he read the Bible, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul said, don't we have the right to, believe, to take along a, a believing wife just as do the rest of the apostles? That seemed like a ton of bricks. Wait a minute, all the apostles are married except Paul. So why am I not supposed to have a wife? That's utter nonsense. Oh, that came from someone, some idea that if you're really godly, uh, you don't have a wife and you don't uh, uh, have sexual enjoyment with your wife and you don't procreate kids. That's absolute nonsense. That's not in the Word of God. So all of life began to open up. Okay, now let's go back to this. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good, no matter what he does. Luther said, as long as what you do is for the good of the community, that's an honorable profession. Uh, this I have also seen that is from the hand of God. Did you see that? Your labor is from the hand of God. 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? And the answer is, no one can have enjoyment without him. Now, there's a false enjoyment, and there's a counterfeit enjoyment, and there's a temporary enjoyment, but it's not deep in the heart, it's not deep in the soul, it's not satisfying. Uh, 26, for to a person who is good in his sight, those who have been redeemed by him and trusted in him, he has given, watch this, to a person who is good, to the one who has faith in him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. To the one who is good in his sight, watch this, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. So enjoyment is a gift of God. Back to the principle in 6, 1 and 2. The gift of possessions and wealth does not come automatically with the gift of enjoyment. Uh, Matt Smithhurst writes in the Gospel Coalition uh, website, and he refers to an article that um, was recently done on Michael Jordan. Uh, his article is called, Do You Still Want to Be Like Mike?, and the subtitle is, When Greatness Meets Emptiness, Michael Jordan at 50. He says, if, you watched, if you've watched ESPN at any point in the last week, you know Michael Jordan just turned 50 with six NBA titles, five MVTs, 10 scoring titles, 14 all-star appearances, posterized on 
uh, posterized, he says, of my childhood wall, Smethurst says. Jordan's legacy on the basketball court is unmatched, but life off the court, especially since his final retirement in 2003, hasn't been so pristine. In anticipation of Jordan's 50th birthday, ESPN senior writer Wright Thompson spent some time with number 23. The product is an article titled, Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building. Then he goes on and says this, Thompson's piece pulsates with the sense that Jordan isn't happy. I'll come back to that. Let me go to the next page. That's interesting he's not happy because here's a direct quote from the article. Jordan is at the center of several overlapping universes. At the top of the billion dollar Jordan brand at Nike of the Charlotte Bobcats of his own company with dozens of employees and contractors on the payroll. I mean, he's, he's pushing a billion bucks. All right? Billion dollars. Thompson's piece pulsates with the sense that Jordan isn't happy. Listen to this, direct quote. I would give up everything now to go back and play the game of basketball. Why is that? They give up everything. Why? Because the gift of possessions and honor and wealth does not automatically come with the gift to enjoy those things. There you go. By the way, let me go back to the paragraph that says, Jordan is the center of several overlapping universes at the top of the billion-dollar Jordan brand at Nike, of the Bobcats, of his own company, with dozens of employees, et cetera, et cetera, in case anyone in the inner circle forgets who's in charge, they only have to recall the code names given to them by the private security team assigned to overseas trips. So this security team that travels with them internationally, it's sort of like the Secret Service giving certain code names. Okay, so Jordan has his inner circle. Uh, Esty... Her name is Venom. Like to meet her sometime. Uh, George, his code name is Butler. Yvette is Harmony. Jordan is called Yahweh. That's what you call hubris. Now may God have mercy on him. Now that's stunning. And I've been thinking about that quote for a while. I, I, I think there's some of that in me. And I think there's some of that in you. In our lives, we all want to be Yahweh. We all want to be the only God. They took up stones to kill Jesus when he said, before Abraham existed, I am. I'm Yahweh. I'm the creator God. 
They took up stones to kill him. Is it not true that we all want to be our own little gods of our own little existence? We have our plans. We have our dreams. We have our goals. We have our ambitions. We have our time frame. We want to be God of our own lives, but we're not. So, how are you doing financially? Well, you know, some guys are doing fine, some guys are doing not so fine. You, you know, it's interesting, you read the scriptures and you go over to Proverbs and it, there, there are several Proverbs that will tell you that in essence what it's saying is the poor man who fears the Lord is better off than the rich man who doesn't fear the Lord. You see, why? Because you see, it doesn't take a lot of possessions to have the gift of being able to enjoy your possessions. You see what I'm saying? You don't have to be a billionaire to enjoy your possessions. In fact, the case is probably that the more you've got, the less likely you are to have the gift to enjoy it. Some do, but not all, not most. Let's go, so, so that's fact three, verses one to two. Let's go to fact four, which I see in verses three through six of Ecclesiastes six. What you have here, let me go ahead and give you the principle. The gift of long life and many children does not automatically come with the gift of enjoyment. Let's read those verses. Get over to six. If a man fathers a hundred children, say, why would he want to do that? <laughs> well, back in their day, the more children you had, the more blessed you were. You see, not in our day. Not in our day. Kids get in the way of affluence and prosperity and doing wine tastings and, and uh, taking your little trips and living your little life of fun and leisure and irresponsibility. Uh, but Psalm 127 says children are a gift from the Lord. They're also an inconvenience, but they're a gift from the Lord. Are they not? Absolutely they are. They'll wear you out. They'll flat out wear you out. They'll turn you into a servant. Because they're born, they have no interest in serving you. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, once again, he hasn't been given the gift to enjoy it, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility, the miscarriage, goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the man lives a thousand years twice, even if he doubles Methuselah, and does not enjoy good things, ah, do not all go to one place, and that's the place of death. 
So, so you see, what's the overriding principle here? The overriding principle is prosperity is not always good if you don't have the gift that only God can give to enjoy your prosperity, and the only way to have that gift is to be in alignment with the living God and to be in submission to Him and to know Him. Another fact is in verses 6 through 9. And here's another reason that prosperity is not always good. We'll read 6 through 9 in a moment. Let me give you the principle. It is impossible for men to capture enjoyment by their own hard work and planning. It is impossible for men to capture enjoyment by their own hard work and planning. You can capture riches and you can capture some possessions by hard work. And the scripture honors hard work. You know that. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. We are to work hard. We're to work hard to the glory of God. Um, But it's impossible for man to capture enjoyment by their own hard work and planning. Verses 6 through 9, which say, Again, even if the other man lives in a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do we not all go to the same place? All a man's labor is for his mouth. And yet, watch this. Yet the appetite, or the soul, is not satisfied. All these things, they don't satisfy. Uh, Eight, for what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eye see what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires or what the soul goes after. This, too, is futility in striving after the wind. Um, we are to work. We're to work hard. We're, we're to save. We're to be careful with our money. We're to, the wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. As best we can, we attempt to do this. But, uh, but your hard work is not going to enable you to get the gift of enjoyment that only comes from the hand of God through mercy and grace. You guys still with me? It's kind of sobering, isn't it? This is sobering stuff because you see so often we think that prosperity is the key to everything. We think it's the great wherewithal. We've got a whole branch in evangelical Christianity, it's sort of a sub-branch. It's not a real balanced branch. Um, it, it, it really is, an, is a biblical, it, it's a non-biblical message that is uh, widely received. It's called prosperity theology. Amen. That God, uh, if you're walking with the Lord, that... Um, my gosh, you always ought to be rich, and you always ought to be healthy. And uh, in- interesting article recently in the New York Times by uh, one of their writers, uh, a-, a woman who has tracked the prosperity movement and written extensively on it, uh, extensively. 
has chronicled the prosperity movement. She knows the prosperity movement. Takes it back to E.W. Kenyon. I had a pastor give me E.W. Kenyon's book when I was 20 years old, a Pentecostal pastor. He told me this is, and, and he, he was a major league player in that world. He told me, he said, uh, this is one of the greatest books I've ever read. I remember I was 20 years old, and I'm reading this thing, and I'm thinking to myself, this is absolute nonsense. I was 20 years old. Now, why did I think it was nonsense? Um, you know, I, I mean, I was raised in a home where the Bible was pretty important. And my family, uh, just the grace of God, but, but what I had seen of the Bible, what I had been taught of the Bible, this made no sense. It made absolutely no sense, and I'm a 20-year-old kid. What do I know? It was the most confusing. It, it wasn't rational. It wasn't logical. It made no sense. I'm 20 years old, and I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, what about Job? Somebody help me with this. What this guy is saying, I'm a 20-year-old kid. It still doesn't make sense. By the way, this lady, this recent article, the lady who writes for the New York Times, uh, she's got terminal cancer. And see, she's been told that she can claim heating anytime. She can't. Um, prosperity theology will let you down because it's not biblical. It has, it has no explanation for suffering, and suffering is a big part of the Christian life. It's a big part, as we'll see in just a minute. Verses uh, 10 through 12 give us the next fact. This fact basically says it is impossible to out... Uh, let, me, let me back up. It is impossible to outwit and argue with the sovereign God. Let's read the verses, verses 10 through 12. Why is it impossible to outwit and argue with the sovereign God? Here's why. Whatever exists has already been named. So what does that mean? In the Bible, na naming is a ruling function. Naming is only done by those in authority. Uh, so what is your name? Did you name yourself? No. Who gave you your name? Your parents. By the way, your parents have authority over you. Naming is a ruling function. Who was it that named all the animals in the garden? Adam. Because Adam had authority over creation. And then God gave him a wife. Who named the wife? Adam, because the husband is head of the wife. Now, in our day and age, we don't want to, we're not going there. No, let's go there. The husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. There is authority. There is a hierarchy of authority in the Scriptures. You see? Uh, naming is a ruling, those who rule, name. Okay. Whatever exists has already been named. By whom? By God. And it is known what man is. Watch this. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. <laughs> Yet what do we do? We try to dispute with him. We try to argue. We try to outwit. Um, because Why? Because we want to be Yahweh. Uh, the four spiritual laws, you may remember, 
that little booklet of Campus Crusade, Law 1, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Hey, you know what? Steve Farrar loves himself and has a wonderful plan for his life. <laughs> and you love you and you have a wonderful plan for your life. And you want to be a little Yahweh and so do I. But Proverbs 16 says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And aren't you glad that he does? You see? And his plan, see, my plan, my plan for my life, by the way, includes no suffering. I'm not stupid. I'm into prosperity. I'm into health. But see, if all you have is prosperity and all you have is uh, affluence, and if your whole life, all you know is being weighted on hand and foot, if all you know is Downton Abbey, you're just a spoiled, miserable, self-centered, narcissistic fool. Are you not? Sure. Any of us. We can't take that. You cannot take unbridled prosperity. It'll ruin you. It'll mess you up. But you see, when things don't go our way, what do we do? We argue with God. C.S. Lewis said something to the effect that it, it, it is somewhat foolish to argue with the one who gave you the ability to argue. That doesn't make much sense, does it? Twelve, for who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? during the years of his futile life. Well, can I tell you this? We don't. We think we know what's good. But God has a better plan. Watch this. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell what man will be after him under the sun? Uh, flip over to Psalm 90. This is a psalm, the only psalm done by Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. God <laughs> encompasses all humans in all cultures at all times, because he created man. Uh, verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is why it's absolutely foolish to argue or try to outwit God or think your plan is better than his. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. Uh, uh, notice verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. That's us. How many years do you have left? How many weeks do you have left? How many breaths? 
you have left. It's been determined by God, and you can't cross it. No man can cross it. Watch this. In light of that, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. See, uh, prosperity is not always good, although man by himself think that, thinks that is exactly what he needs. Uh, 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 for me, I wouldn't trust someone who's always been prosperous. I want to see someone who has uh, been hurt. I want to see someone who has fallen down and with God's help has gotten back up. Now, let's go to chapter 7. The second fact. The second true fact. And once again, this, round, this runs counter to, our, uh, to what we think is best. But beginning with chapter 7 down to 14, we see the principle that adversity is not always bad. We think it is. I was reading Ray Steadman this week. Ray said, hard times can be the best years of your life because hard times produce character and wisdom. Um, adversity is not always bad. Why? Because you see, it's adversity that builds character and it's adversity that builds wisdom. Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. How do you get wisdom? Through adversity. James 1, count it joy. Think it is joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Nothing. The man who's never been through adversity, the man who has never failed, the man who has never suffered, the man that has never regretted what he has done, the man who has no need to ask for forgiveness. He hasn't learned anything. Um, the point of this is, as we're going to see in, in, in chapter 7, why, why is it that adversity is not always bad? Here's why. Because God brings good out of adversity. Uh, good lessons for life are learned through adversity. Good lessons. Um, I would say to you, adversity is not always bad because God brings good out of adversity. He brings good lessons out of experiences of adversity and hardship. Um, in Proverbs 7, you get a listing of good lessons that are only learned the hard way. A number of years ago, my son John had a friend with him that he had known in high school, and they were kind of in their rebellious years. And then this uh, young man really kind of went off the rails big time. And uh, I hadn't seen him in years. 
And there he was with John, and John had told me the Lord had gotten a hold of him, and he, uh, he was walking with the Lord and was just a different young man. And so there he was. I walked outside, and there was John with this young guy, and he, and he said, hi, Mr. Farrar. And I said, hey, man, I haven't seen you in a while. And how you doing? And he said, well, I'm, 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 I'm doing really well now, but I, I really got myself in... And he, and he really couldn't hardly talk. He said, I guess I just had to learn the hard way. I said, you know, I've never met anyone who's learned the easy way. <laughs> never have. We all learn the hard way. But you're, but you're learning, you see? Uh, Adversity is not always bad because we learn good lessons. We learn good lessons through the hard way, through adversity and suffering and setbacks and disappointments. That's true of my life. That's true of your life. And let me say this. Good lessons are not only learned the hard way. Good lessons are learned, watch this, the slow way. The slow way. What do I mean by that? We're going to, in a moment, look at these Proverbs uh, in chapter 7. But what, 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 I wanna, what I wanna show you is these Proverbs because it's gonna say this is better than this. And we tend not to learn what is better until we go through adversity. I'll, I'll get specific in a minute. But it's important that we understand that these good lessons are learned the hard way and good lessons are learned the slow way. In other words, there is not a giant Christian microwave. You know how microwaves have those recipes? You, you know, boil water, uh, reheat, you know, omelet, whatever. Whatever it is. There's no giant Christian microwave that says spiritual maturity, three minutes. It doesn't exist. You don't get spiritual maturity in three minutes. Ian Murray wrote a book called Heroes, Great Men of the Christian Faith. He has a chapter on John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace. He was a pastor in Olney, England, wrote hundreds of hymns, great man of God, had a tremendous letter, uh, ministry of, of, of writing letters. I've quoted from some of his letters. His letters have been published. Uh, Newton was the captain of a slaver ship, was a, uh, was a reprobate, other sailors did not want to work with him because of his vile language. They were, afraid, they were afraid to be near him. Sailors were afraid to be near him because he was so vile in his language. Afraid they might get struck by the lightning along with him. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was a sexual reprobate with the women that were on those ships. This guy was bad news. He actually wound up, as he continued to reject the gospel, he wound up, this is in the 1700s, a white man being a slave to a black woman in the Caribbean. That didn't happen. Imagine that. He was, he was there was a, another captain who had married a black woman. She had several slaves. Through a series of events, he wound up a slave, and she treated him worse than the other slaves. It still didn't turn him to Christ. Eventually, he came to the Lord. Uh, 
I want to read this section from uh, Murray's book. Newton regarded it as of first importance because he was a pastor and he ministered to pastors. He regarded it as first importance for ministers to understand, watch this, that grace matures slowly, not quickly. Few lessons were repeated more often to fellow ministers than this one. It comes up repeatedly. Direct quote from Newton. God works powerfully, but for the most part, gently and gradually. Next quote. He does not teach all at once, but by degrees. By the way, Newton was converted and then took the slave ship out again. How could that be? Well, God does not teach all at once, but by degrees. The first thing that happened to him was he was aware of his sexual sin. And that was the first thing he began to work on and ask God for grace to help him with the sexual sin. And he put himself on that, on that next voyage. I, I read his biography, his autobiography. He put himself on uh, a diet of, uh, of uh, bread and water with no wine because when he drank the wine, he got out of control. He hadn't gotten slavery yet. He was, he was just dealing with the sex stuff. Next quote from Newton. A Christian is not of hasty growth like a mushroom, but rather like the oak, the progress of which is hardly perceptible. Ah, but in time becomes a great deep-rooted tree. That didn't happen in a microwave. One of his fullest treatments on this principle is based on Christ's words in Mark 4, 28, which describes the manner in which the kingdom of God grows. Watch this. First the blade, then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. On this particular parable, Newton saw what he saw as three stages in the life of a Christian from its beginning to its maturity. Now, why am I going into this? Because adversity is not always bad because we learn important lessons, we learn good lessons in adversity, but there's the point, and we're going to look at them in a minute. You don't learn them quickly. You learn these lessons slowly through adversity. Okay, I'm not done with Newton. Newton believed that regeneration, the point when a sinner is savingly and secretly renewed by the Holy Spirit, he believed that is instantaneous, and it is. And in a letter of 1753, he says to himself, in this one day, I became diametrically opposite to what I was the day before. Why? Because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. This being so, we may question why the dating of his Christian life is so uncertain because he was a little, at times he, he was not sure. Even though he marked a day, but then he would struggle with sin and he would wonder, well, am I really a Christian at all? Have you ever had that happen to you? Yeah. If I'm a Christian, why am I acting like this? Ah, because grace is slow. You don't mature overnight. Uh, let me go on. While regeneration is instant, the process of conversion is commonly gradual. A babe has life but little understanding, and so it was with Newton. Spiritual truths, he writes, the Lord was pleased to discover to me gradually. I learned them a little here and a little there. Um, did you get that? It's gradual. It's not instantaneous. 
so you see, do you ever get frustrated? Do you feel that, uh, why am I not there? Why am I still struggling with this? Why am I still, because it's a process, man. It's a process. It, it's, it, it, it's, it's adversity, it's a hard way, and it's a slow way. God doesn't do microwaves. God does crockpots. God's into the slow cooker. Okay? Let's go to Proverbs 7. What you've got in Proverbs 7 um, is you've got a series of um, loosely organized Proverbs that speaks of the good that slowly comes out of adversity and suffering. So again, what's our big picture? Prosperity is not always good. Ah, but adversity is not always bad. Okay. So let's look at uh, let's look at seven one. A good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Let's talk about a good name. A good name, a good name is character. Um, a good name is better than a, than a valuable perfume. Um, Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen instead of riches. That's how valuable a good name is. In Psalm 15.4, speaking of the man who dwells on God's holy hill, it says he swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. That's quite a statement. So if you're a man of God and you give your word and suddenly the situation occurs where it would be inconvenient and financially cost you to fulfill your word, according to Scripture, you swear to your own hurt and you don't change. If the deal is advantageous to you, at the time you give your word, and then the circumstances change so that it puts you at a disadvantage, you swear to your own hurt and you do not change. That's how you get a good name. There's a difference between reputation and character. Reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you are when no one else is around. You know the good thing about, you know one reason a good name is better than riches? Because you can leave riches to kids, and uh, it's gone. You leave a good name, and it's never gone. Never. The example of character, the example of integrity, the example of keeping your vows, that's precious. One of the best uh, biographies on John Newton, I got it on my shelf. I saw it walking out the door. It was by Jonathan Aitken. Aitken uh, was of a, a, a very honored family in the British Empire. Um, was in Parliament. Had all kinds of honors. Um, was, uh, he, wrote, he wrote a phenomenal biography on John Newton. Uh, one of the reasons he related to Newton is because... Um, He went through incredible adversity because he lied under oath and was convicted and spent time in prison. That's where he found Christ. And his name was Sullied. 
You know, he got his name back just like Chuck Colson did by becoming a genuine man of character. See, the thing is, you can lose a good name. And a lot of us have lost a good name. But you see, through Christ and his resurrection power, no matter what you've done, he can turn that around. He can turn it around. I know a guy that 10 years ago was a cocaine addict living on the streets of Dallas, had abandoned his wife and kids and family. Now he's got quite a ministry to men. And you know, what the, you know what the word is among these young guys that are coming out of the drug culture? You got to come meet him. He's the real deal. You see, his kids didn't even trust him 10 years ago. Now they're bringing kids that don't know Christ to him because he has a good name. This is what Christ does. I'm in big trouble here because there's a bunch of Proverbs. So I'm going to just give you the, uh, we're going to hit these fast. 7-2. An eternal perspective. I'm going to give you the principle here of these Proverbs, okay? The principle of 7-2 is an eternal perspective comes from funerals and not parties. The, the thing is, in our lives, we have to get serious about life at some point. And you don't get serious about life by going to parties all the time. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living take it to heart. You're going to die. Life is not a party. Life is just not about having fun. Life is just not missing around. Life is serious. Uh, in, in Titus 2, God talks about the character of older men. He wants them to be sober. He wants them to be clear-headed. He wants them to be serious. He wants them to be stable. He wants them to have gravitas. You'll never be that way if you never face what you learn at a funeral. It'll never happen. You know that and I know it. Um, 7.3. Here's a principle. God uses sorrow to bring about deep gladness. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Uh, listen, why is there sorrow? Because you're in adversity. Something bad has happened. Sorrow is better than laughter. Why? For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. I always think of Paul Lanier, who was in this Bible study for years, who had Lou Gehrig's disease. And when Paul couldn't talk any longer, and when he could just use that software with blinking his eyes to send messages, he would still say, the greatest gift that God has ever given me is Lou Gehrig's disease. He lost everything. Couldn't fly his plane. He couldn't practice medicine. He couldn't hang out with his daughters or his wife. He couldn't go big game hunting, which he loved to do. He couldn't lift weights, which he loved to do. But you see, he lost it all. There was unbelievable adversity, but there was a gladness in his heart because he knew life didn't end on this earth. 
He knew it was far better to be with the Lord. That's where he was going, and one day he'd be reunited with his wife and his kids forever, forever. There was gladness in his heart, but he learned the lesson through adversity. When everything was going well, he wasn't there. He was there now. Uh, in verses 4 through 6, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Watch this. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. Ha, 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 You ever hear that in a restaurant or in a bar? Ha, 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 It's just, I mean, really, come on. I remember the laugh of a particular individual. It was kind of a cackle. And I remember when they took a shotgun and blew their brains out. They, it, it, what a tragedy. They lived a foolish life. Or where the gospel, they lived a foolish life. Devastated their family. Did you see uh, five? It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man. I remember as a 28-year-old young rookie pastor, I was going to an event. I, I pastored a little church that was an offshoot of Peninsula Bible Church about 10 miles north. I was coming to the church for some kind of meeting. I'm out of my car, I'm walking through the driveway into the building, and Ray Stebman was in his car and he rolled down his window. And he said, hey Steve, and he was driving out. And he said, you got two minutes? And I said, yeah. And he gave me a rebuke, a very kind rebuke, very gracious rebuke. He said, hey Steve, I tried to call you a couple times saw you. I just thought I might just share this with you. I said, sure, Ray. And it was a rebuke. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. It had a good spirit. It was to help and not hurt, and I knew that. And it kind of stunned me. And I've never forgotten when I read this verse, that was the first thing I thought about. You need some people in your life who love you enough to tell you the truth. And then you've got to be man enough to listen. The principle in 7-7 for oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. Can I tell you something else that, uh, that you learn through adversity? You learn through adversity that uh, you can't be bought. You can't be bought. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You belong to Christ. He died for you. There was great adversity there. And sometimes we're more concerned about our reputation than we are with our character. Sometimes we'll uh, take the shortcut. You don't take shortcuts. Shortcuts never work out. 
And it's through adversity that we learn not to take moral or financial shortcuts. Uh, what does this say? A bribe corrupts the heart. Yeah, it does. And it leads you down a path you don't want to go down. By the way, in Psalm 15, where it says you swear to your own hurt and you don't change, it also, in the next line or two, it says he does not take a bribe against the innocent. You don't do that. You don't, you, 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 don't, um, you don't put in a vote for Planned Parenthood because they're going to do this or this for you. or do. You don't do that because you don't want to be an accessory to murder. You don't take a bribe. You're clean. And if you're not clean, get clean. Run to Christ. We confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that great news? You bet it is, man. In verses 8 through 10, I see this principle. It's better to wait for God's timing than to be impatient. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. Why? It's over. Uh, my daughter, Rachel, says the greatest of all humans, human emotions is relief. I love that. After three years with the IRS and I was cleared, I was relieved. The greatest of all human emotions is relief. The end of the matter is, the, is better than the beginning, right? Uh, patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Leave the timing of your situation to God. Obadiah Sedgwick said, God in your life will take time, but in your life God will never waste time. Wait for God's answer. Wait for God's deliverance. Don't get mad at him if you are delayed. Wait for his timing. Uh, verses 11 and 12 Wisdom is better because it gives discernment to preserve life. Wisdom is better because it gives discernment to preserve your life. Uh, notice, wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. If you get an unforeseen bill and you got some money in the bank, that's a protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. Watch this with me for a minute. How do you get wisdom? You get wisdom by going through adversity as you go through life. And the longer you walk with Christ, the more adversity you're going to go through. But the more adversity you go through, the more wisdom is going to be yours. And as a result of obtaining more wisdom, you're going to be able to preserve your life because you're going to avoid situations through God's wisdom that you would have jumped into before that would have been a threat and a danger to you. Does that make any sense? It makes all kinds of sense. So adversity is not always bad. Oh, and prosperity is not always good. So what do we do? Oh, well now we're back to 13. So as you're here tonight and I'm here, your circumstances, where you are, consider the work of God who's able to straighten what he has been in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider 
Lord, what do you want me to learn? God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will come after him. You know what I tie to this? I tie, I tie to this, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Because there are some things we get about what God's doing, and there's some things we don't get. I think Proverbs 3, 5, tie, 3, 5 ties it up. Trust in the Lord, no matter where you are tonight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Why am I in this adversity? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways, and he shall direct your path. That's the word of God. So, Father, we thank you for the truth. Encourage us as we walk through life. We are thankful for what we have, and we are thankful for what we don't have. We look around and see some guys that have some things we'd like to have, and we think that's a good thing. Well, it may be a good thing, but it's not good for us. Not right now. Because no good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. It might be good in six months. It might be good in two years. Right now, it's not good. So help us not to covet. Help us to trust. Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.